Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. God doesn't want any fear to be associated with your faith. He doesn't want it at all. The Bible is replete with instructions like that. The word of God says that anyone who puts their hope in him will not be ashamed. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will not be ashamed. Hallelujah. In Romans chapter 5, it says something similar. It says, and hope make it not ashamed. Listen, our hope will not leave us ashamed. Do you know what that means? I gave an illustration in the Lagos church. Let me quickly give it to you since the Lord is leading me in this direction. Imagine you buy cold stone ice cream with some waffles, you know, and then you have Oreos, you know, toppings, you know, M&M, right? You know. And, well, maybe you got back late, so you put it in the fridge. But you forgot you had siblings. The next day you went to work, you came back sweating, you know, how the sun can be. And you're on your way, you're, like, you're just like, when I get back, you know, that ice cream. And then you get to the fridge and you open it up. <laughs> and nothing. Right? That's what it means for hope to be made ashamed. <laughs> Someone's like, hey, hey, like, this house will catch fire. <laughs> it's just an illustration. <laughs> Calm down. Some are already annoyed. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's what God means when he says, everyone who puts their hope in him, who calls on the name of the Lord, shall not be ashamed. You know, some people have painted the idea of salvation. That there are some people who have been serving God all their lives. And then they will just get to the gate of heaven. And they say, sorry, your name is not here. (laughs) That's what it means for hope to be made ashamed. He says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall not be ashamed. Hallelujah. See, I will not be ashamed. You see, it's very important. This is Amazing Grace Grand Finale. And if after Sunday and Tuesday teachings, you still don't get it, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. There there are few places in the world, and I say this with all sense of humility and modesty, that you will hear this the way you hear it here. Few places in the world. And if Sunday and Tuesday services still wasn't enough for you to come to a firm conviction, what are you waiting for? What's the problem? We had one objective that has two smaller parts. 
and teaching you all of this. And to help you understand the utter helplessness of man in salvation and the sovereign intervention of God. When you think of salvation, you must think of the utter helplessness of man. Listen, if you don't consider yourself to have been utterly helpless, it's not grace. Listen, if you're sitting on a chair and your pen drops and I pick it for you, that's not grace. That's assistance. Why is it not grace? Because you could help yourself. You can't see the work of God to be as big as it's meant to be seen until you see yourself to be as poor as you really were. So it's the utter helplessness of man and the sovereign intervention of God. That's salvation. Settle it in your mind. When we're talking about salvation, we're talking about the dead coming back to life. That's what salvation is. The dead coming back to life. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. Salvation is not conduct. Even though there is conduct in salvation. You know, someone sent me a picture, you know, all these picture quotes of a sermon I preached 2013. And in that sermon, I said, salvation is not a lifestyle. Even though there is a lifestyle in salvation. I remember I gave an illustration. A human being might crawl and walk on all fours and mimic a dog. Woof, woof. Everybody can do woof, woof. Does that make you a dog? But if you were playing that way and a rabid dog came and saw you and then beat you, if you're not treated early enough, irresistibly, you will be backing, confirmed back. <laughs> you know that, right? And you, you know, and that's because there is something that has to flow in you to make you a dog. It's a makeup, not a conduct. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what salvation is. Not, not trying to act right. Righteousness. Ay, ay, ay. Righteousness is a spirit. It's reckoned in the spirit of Christ. You are righteous when you receive the Spirit of God. It's not a lifestyle. It's a life. Every life has a lifestyle. But not every lifestyle is a life. Hallelujah. Come on, you know what I mean. Everybody fix it in our world. Not everybody who acts rich is rich. (laughs) Not everybody who acts poor is poor. I heard the story of a guy who was, you know, bragging to his friend. He said, I just rented this apartment. You should see the place. You know, ah, everything is there. And the guy said, where? And described the place. He said, wow, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. You know, only for the guy. In fact, he said something ridiculous like, God will keep blessing us. You know, as if to say, you know. Only for him to hear the next week that the guy is the owner of that building. The building he rented and is bragging about. The person he was bragging to owns it. That's our, that's our culture. <laughs> Everybody tries to fake it. 
Hallelujah. And it's like a prophecy because it works. Because music artists, when they want to shoot videos, they rent chain. Are you aware they rent those things? Are you aware they rent clothes? Rent. They rent ch- car, rent everything, and they start singing, I'm rich, I'm rich, I'm rich. You know? And then you believe it, you perceive them as rich, you call them for your events, you pay them like rich people, and then they become rich. Is that a prophecy? <laughs> Hallelujah. Salvation is a life, not a lifestyle. Say that with me. Salvation is a life, not a lifestyle. You see, and that life is a gift. The dead coming back to life. That's what salvation is. It's the sovereign intervention of God. Settle it in your mind. You know, there's a powerful text. I want to read to you this morning. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 9. Hallelujah. Listen. Someone here has just been healed of, of a bone pain. You have a bone pain. You've, you've just been healed. The power of God flows through you right now. And whatever needs to be replaced is replaced. In the name of Jesus. So if you are that person, you're going to have to act on the word of God. And demonstrate your faith. And do things you couldn't do before. Praise the Lord. Can't wait to hear your miracle. Alright, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Are you there? Read together one, two, go. Hallelujah. You know, the first thing that gets my attention so much is the fact that this pastor says, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, now he's talking to a church. Historically, we're told that church have thousands of people, thousands of members. And he's saying, you know, meaning the grace of God was common knowledge in that assembly. You know, hallelujah. Not every congregation can talk like this. He says, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I want to be able to talk like this about you. This come on knowledge. I'm just reminding you. This is a reminder series. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say, I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a church. This is what a church should be like. This is what a church should be. You know, some people attend church for the wrong reasons. Their friend goes there. You know, that's the church I was born into. Hallelujah. But, but look at this church. The pastor is saying, you know. So everybody in that assembly had a fair idea of what he was talking about. They knew the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement. He says, for ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In celebration church, you ought to know. You ought to know. It's not a sermon for Easter alone. You ought to know. And this is why before and during and after Easter we preach these things. Because it says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to know. To be assured about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. To have it settled in your mind. 
Paul told Timothy, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So that information can form a strong and firm conviction in your heart. He says, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know one way to know you know something? It is when you know what it isn't. Because you see, wisdom finds its ultimate expression in discernment. It finds its ultimate manifestation in discernment. When you can differentiate, that's wisdom. So to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have to know what it isn't. That's proof that you know. Because there are all kinds of messages in the world today. You come to a point where you listen and you know, oh, that's not it. Because I know what it is. Because I know what it is, I cannot be deceived. You see that? This is it, that's not it. Oh, this is close, but you still, you, you still don't, you have not hit the nail on the head. We know. So we know what it isn't. For instance, material prosperity cannot be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people, in fact, the first time I heard this verse preached, and the second time, and the fourth time, and the tenth time, they were using it to preach money. But it has nothing to do with money at all. Listen, I believe that God favors the believer. There is favor in God. There is supernatural leading in God. And that brings prosperity. But material prosperity is not the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to understand what I'm saying. You say, why? Because it's called the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning what we are talking about, you would only have if you had Jesus. So if there are poor people who have money, money cannot be the grace of our Lord Jesus. Is that simple enough? What we are talking about is for believers alone. It's secret knowledge. That's why he says, we know. Not everybody knows, but we know. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if it's not material prosperity, what then is he talking about? Well, I'll have you understand that the word rich was a popular metaphor in the epistles. And it was used to describe the prosperity, the grace, the blessings of our inheritance in Christ. Sometimes it was even used to compare with money and to show us that what we have is even bigger and much more better. Let me tell you this. You know, in December I taught you that one of the proof of maturity is the discernment of value. Who remembers? It's the proof of maturity. My daughter can pick my iPhone XR and start drumming. You know, drumming on the table. Because she heard a beat and she wants to respond. And when you're screaming, she doesn't really get it. She's getting it now after some killing, you know. <laughs> she will get, she must get. <laughs> you know, but, 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 but you get the point because she doesn't see, the, knowing the difference between a drumstick and a phone comes with age and growth. I'm saying that because people who are not exposed spiritually, you know, they hear about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the moment I say it's not money, they, some part of their mind zooms out. <laughs> My wife and I went taxify years ago, 
you know, my car developed a fault on Sunday morning, a simple thing, the battery head and stuff. So we entered Taxify, and we began to engage that guy, preaching to him. And then the highlight of the conversation is, he said, ah, if God not give me money, which can God be that? He said, he said, I cannot save a God that will not give me money. You know the problem? <laughs> Such a person, if a rabbi shows up, he will believe. You see, it's that kind of mindset that has given false teachers a platform in the body. So anybody who can give me not just money, but the most money, let him be God. Hallelujah. But we are talking about something bigger than money. Come on. I would to God that that would excite you. Look at what James says in James chapter 2 verse 5. James chapter 2 and verse 5. James chapter 2 and verse 5. Do you believe in the healing power of God? Has nothing to do with James. I was just asking for someone. James chapter 2 verse 5. Are you there? It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, had not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to them that love him? Everybody read James chapter 2 verse 5 together. One, two, go. Hallelujah. So, there are some people who you would categorize as poor in this world. You see, he, he qualified what he's talking about. Poor in this world. Meaning poor in your eyes. He says, but you're rich in faith. Hallelujah. Now, God is not in support. He's not an advocate for poverty, material poverty. He's not. Poverty is the creation of man. Scarcity is the creation of man. Because there, there is enough resource to go around. Because, but not many rich people are as selfless as they should be. You see that? It's also a creation of the fall of Adam. But from the beginning you can see God's perspective. The first man opened his eye to a garden that was already prepared. You see that? That's God's mindset. Praise the Lord. That's God's mindset. However, there are things bigger than money. And he says he has chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith. Glory to God. Rich in faith. So even the poor is consoled. He has something bigger than money. Don't you understand? Life on earth is short. <laughs> and the moment you close your eye here and open it on the other side, value has changed. Yeah. Your money can no more be spent. And the guy who, who was struggling to eat crumbs under your table, if you're not careful, be looking at him up like this and asking for a drop of water. 
Say, God forbid. Actually, it's not in God's place to forbid. It's in your place to forbid. You believe the gospel. Hallelujah. But there are things bigger than money. He has chosen the poor in this world, rich in faith. Sell out, amen. amen. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, I've preached this to you time and again. And this will make sense to you when you understand that Jesus was speaking in financial terms. It says, what shall it profit a man? Mark 8, 36. For what shall it profit a man? Profit is a financial term. He's talking money. He's saying, is it a wise decision to gain the whole world and lose your soul? He says, that's plus one million minus one billion. That's what he's saying. Listen, the person who is talking knows what he's talking about. And he says, it's not a smart thing to gain the whole world. You won't really appreciate what he's saying, except you picture what it would be like to gain the whole world. Imagine just the top ten richest people in the world. Just, just, Just those people come to you and they're giving you all their wealth, one after the other. Bill Gates, maybe about $70 billion. Yeah, roughly, eh? Gives you that. You know, Bezos. I don't even know who is first. You know, he comes, gives you his own. Warren comes, gives you his own. Zuckerberg comes, he just comes. Somebody say, don't go far, Pastor. Dangote is okay. <laughs> Dangote, if I, Dangote, I'll go there, okay. Well, you know. <laughs> Don't go to Bill Gates. Dangote is okay. And Jesus, nobody understands value like him. And he's giving you an economic decision. He says it's not smart to gain all this, everything, and lose your soul. The person who is talking, was offered everything. You know, the devil says, look at the kingdoms of the world. So he knows what he's talking about. He says, what, what shall it profit? Why gain what you can't spend? <coughs> Hallelujah. Say loud, amen. amen. So we're talking about something more than gold. He says, the poor in this world who knows Christ, is rich. It takes revelation to understand this. To see people, you can have mentors in your career. Mentors in the office. You can have financial mentors. And frankly, when it comes to intelligence, reproducing money, they don't have to be born again. But when it all comes down to it, from the lens of God, you should be able to see such people and and feel bad. Like all this for nothing. To see the real condition of their heart and see them as people who need to be saved. You know, you can get carried away with mammon. When you see rich people, you will think you are the one that needs to be saved. <laughs> I saw an ignorant fellow 
on social media. He was in the car park of a rich guy. And he said, ah, what's going on? The guy said, he said, I will serve your God. Oh. Hallelujah. <laughs> We're in an age of foolishness. <laughs> what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? This is profit and loss. Accountants know what I'm saying. What shall he profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You know what it says next? It says, what shall a man give in exchange? In exchange for his soul. What will be worth that exchange? Nothing. And so the poor in this world, who knows Jesus, he says he's rich. Oh my God. He's rich. He may not have billions in his account, but he's rich. The one who has the ultimate right to descend value calls him rich. And so he is rich. Hallelujah. Nobody has a more legitimate reason to call themselves rich. Am I losing you? Nobody has a more legitimate reason to call themselves rich than you. You who is in Christ. Hallelujah. He says you are rich in faith. Glory to God. And so that's what he's talking about here. He says, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might be rich. You know, no other explanation makes sense. Some people think it was financial prosperity. Okay, so Jesus had plenty of money. Then he became poor. He lost all the money, maybe bad investment or something. Or he gave it to you. And that through his poverty, he became rich. You know, so you now want to know, at what point did Jesus have a lot of money? Did he accumulate? You say, oh, his spiritual riches. Okay, so Jesus became spiritually poor. Do, do you understand? This clearly just defines or explains his sacrifice. Paul explained it to Philippi this way. He says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He did not consider equality with God something to be held onto. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. Now that's poverty. He became poor. He humbled himself unto the death of the cross. That you, through his poverty, might be rich. Say loud, amen. amen. So we were in a state of spiritual bankruptcy. And he came. So that by his death, we might step into what Paul now called the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's the riches he's talking about. Say, I'm rich. Hallelujah. Some of you are not sure. You are still letting your pockets talk. We are hearing your pockets. <laughs> I'm just joking. Hallelujah. Say, I'm rich. Glory to God. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now this is revelation knowledge. To be able to say that I through the death of Jesus became rich. I gained something from his death. That's revelation. I've told you time and again. The people in Jesus' earthly ministry, they didn't really get it, at least not at first. They were just like, oh, Jesus was a great prophet. And he got killed by wicked people. And God raised him back to life. So at first, they saw it as the goodness of God to Jesus. <laughs> God is so good to him. The same way they rejoiced when Lazarus was raised from the dead. You understand? They were rejoicing. But that, that's different. First of all, practically, Lazarus lived to an old age and died. But this man rose again never to die again. That's, that's a very significant difference. And also, his resurrection has brought hope to all men. Paul, explaining to Athens in Greece, he says he has given all men assurance of eternal life by raising Jesus from the dead. He has given all men assurance. Now that's different. So how does the death of Jesus benefit me? Oh, that was God's plan? That was what God was doing? The moment you can see that, that's what Paul was praying that you will see. He says that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened to know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power, us what who believe, according to meaning as a result of the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ. So he's saying, I want you to see how the resurrection of Jesus brought you riches, brought you an inheritance. That's what Paul was praying that you would see. You see that? There is a term for it, a doctrinal term for it. It's called baptism. We explained that last week, Tuesday, right? It's called baptism. And what is baptism? I've told you, a lot of people just think of water. Immediately they hear that, and that's sad. But it's, it's, baptism describes the supernatural operation by which we become beneficiaries of the redemptive work of Christ. That's what baptism is. It's supernatural operation. By which we become beneficiaries of the redemptive work of Christ. When you say the death of Jesus benefited me, that can only be possible by a doctrinal term called baptism. I was immersed as a beneficiary into his work. Say loud, amen. amen. Let's see what Jesus said about this. In John chapter 12, verse 24. This is powerful. I suggest you open it. Just nudge the person by your side, just to be sure they are awake. Just nudge. It's not as if I saw anybody sleeping, no. but just in case, you know. Say, brother or sister, are you there? Are you there? Hallelujah. John chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus speaking, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth much, 
bringeth forth much fruit. I love this analogy. It's brilliant. Everyone who has tried to plant something understands this. So if you have, you know, maize grains and you want more, what are you going to do? The only way you can have more is for what you have to die. You see that? It has to, it has to die to live. So you're going to dig the ground. You're going to put that seed Cover it, the heat will scorch it so bad, it will have to actually die. But the next thing you see is some roots begin to come out. Hallelujah. And then you see it sprout from the ground. And then that little fickle sprout gets stronger and taller. Branches come out. And then you begin to see much fruits. From few grains. You can feed a family. And he's using this to explain salvation. He says the only way God can begat a great family is if somebody dies. So, like a corn of wheat, I will fall to the ground and die. But I might have fallen as one, but I will rise as many. Glory to God! I might have been buried as an individual, but I will rise as a nation. Hallelujah. He said, his, Isaiah prophesied thus, he says his seed will prolong his days. Hallelujah. He will die as an individual, rise as a big, huge family. That's what he was telling them before he went. He says, in my father's family, there are many dwelling places, new opportunities. We are adopting. If it were not so, I would have told you, I will go. He's talking about his death. My death will prepare a place for you. By my death, you'll become sons also. A lot of people thought that that scripture was talking about Jesus going to go and start building. Build a house for you in heaven. He's building. He didn't have to go for that to happen. Angels could build a house for you if he was talking about a house. And by the way, how can you have a mansion in a house? In my father's house, there are many mansions. It makes no sense. So he's talking about something else. Don't forget, one of the primary reasons he was killed is because he called himself son of God. And he's telling them, not only am I the son of God, in my father's family, (laughs) there's room for more sons. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be also. Glory to God. The writer of Hebrews says he he, he has brought many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10. Many sons. He brought many sons to resurrection. You see, in Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13, Jesus was talking to his disciples. He said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And just like today, they had all sorts of rumors. You see, it didn't start today that people who don't know you feel they know everything there is to know about you. 
And they're usually wrong. Praise the Lord. People just sit down and make up stuff. Make up rubbish. Praise the Lord. You know, I remember somebody, was it a chat or a call? Called my wife a few weeks to, pray, uh, to marriage, our wedding. And said, is it true? That, I mean, <laughs> is it true that what? Said, I heard you are getting married because you got pregnant. Do you understand? Know <laughs> I feel like clapping too. You know. First of all, that's so wrong. Do the math. <laughs> How old is Edima? When did we get married? Do you understand? Know but the audacity. <laughs> Do you understand? Know like, this, this is a girl, under, undergraduate. She called from school to ask, is it true? You know, all manner of things. Our first, first venue, someone said it was a great, one of the top men of God in the country that gave us. You know, and I'm like, honestly, that one I wish. <laughs> but how do people make up stuff like that? And you know, they'll be telling you, I'm sure, you know. In Jesus' day, rumors were spreading that he's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is cousin. You, you, you have to understand how stupid that is. John the Baptist that baptized him in water, that they saw both of them. He said he's John. You, as in, some people come up with stuff that, you know, no gumption whatsoever. They just, and they will preach, it's John now, you don't know. And they tell you, okay, they did. Say it's John the Baptist. Some said it's Elias. That one is okay. Hallelujah. It says, Who do you say that I the son of man am? Peter speaking by revelation says, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Hallelujah. And Jesus replied and said, I say to you, you are you you are you are Peter. Upon this rock, I will build my church. You know, I, I think it's very interesting, like Mark Hankin said. You know, Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus said, you are Peter. <laughs> very interesting, right? What a reply. He said, because the revelation of Christ is the revelation of yourself. When you discover who Christ is, you finally discovered God's purpose for your life. Self-discovery, the greatest self-discovery comes when you know who Christ is. So the moment he said, you are the Christ, he replied, you are Peter. <laughs> Hallelujah. I can tell you that personally, I knew myself for the first time in Christ. I knew what I was capable of. I knew what I was destined to do, what I was destined to be. But that's not even where we're going. He says, oh, yeah, yeah. Verse 18, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Upon this rock, this revelation of who I am. I'll build my church. 
by the way, that's past tense. He has built his church. You know, some people are still singing, he will build his church. Some are even praying. Because it, it's ignorance. You don't know what he means. Hallelujah. You can't be in Christ except the church is built. It says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades. Greek word Hades, meaning the grave. He was talking about his death and resurrection. I'll build my church and the gates of Hades. Did he say will not prevail against me? Will not prevail against what? The church. Against it. Hallelujah. So he's letting you know, ah, yeah, yeah. The plans of the enemy to stop my rising is the plan of the enemy to stop our rising. Again, he died as one who rose as a nation. His resurrection is the building of his church. His resurrection gave us access into his name. You see that? He says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of the grave, shall not prevail, not just against me, but against us. That tells you we were raised with him. The grave did not prevail against us. Hallelujah. So Jesus had been talking like that in his early ministry. The gates of hell will not prevail against, you know, he should have as well said, you guys. But I know them. They always saw things in the flesh. They would have been afraid. Are you trying to say we would die? Hallelujah. He has built his church. Glory to God. The gates of hell did not prevail. It did not prevail. We're here. Thank you, Lord. Do you have his spirit in you? Well, that's because he has built his church. It was you he was building, don't you see? His death was preparing a place for you. By church, it means people. He has brought sons to glory. Hallelujah. And that's what baptism is. So, you see, you keep growing. You grow when you see what God did in Christ as God doing something for you. So you can say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ is just a long doctrinal term to describe the finality of the resurrection of Christ. Don't forget, he says that Jesus is sat down at the right hand of God in heavenly places. Do you understand what I'm saying? So heavenly places describes the exaltation of Christ. He humbled himself, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name. So when he tells you, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, he's telling you the exaltation of Jesus brought blessing to you. That's the, the idea. So you go to Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1. Turn there quickly. Time is, time is just turning on your own. You know, time runs fast when you're having fun. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 1, it says, And you have he brought back to life. That's revelation. You have he quickened. You know, some will say, oh, he raised Jesus from the dead. Mm -mm. He says, you have he brought back to life. 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the cross of this world, according to the priest of power, the air, the spirit that now walketh in children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past and loss of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature children of wrath, even as others. So now he's describing your sinful, your former sinful nature. And then what has God done about the sinful nature of man? The next verse says, But God! Who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, had quickened us together with Christ. You see that? So we were raised up together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And has raised us up together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What you just read is the explanation of Ephesians 1.3. How am I blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ? Because I sit where he sits. His authority has become my authority. He's given me that name. He says all power in heaven and earth have been given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You see that? This is what baptism describes. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Sell out, amen. amen. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Are you being blessed? Colossians 2.12 says, and I read because of time, it says, buried with him. You see that? See, I was buried with him. Buried with him in baptism. That's what baptism is. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Who hath raised him from the dead? Everybody read Colossians 2 12 together. One, two, go. Now oh, that's good, right? That's good, right? I was buried with him, I was raised with him. That's revelation. To be able to say, I was crucified. You know, Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 6, he says, we were crucified together with Christ. The Greek word used there was the word used for the thieves who were crucified literally side by side Jesus. Literally. So he's telling you it's a spiritual legal fact that you died with Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. Isn't this amazing? Crucified together with him. Buried with him by baptism. And it says by faith in the operation of God. By faith in the baptism of God. We're raised together with him. Say loud amen. amen. Say that's my life. And so we see what Jesus did differently. We see it through the lens of the revelation of the redemptive work. We don't see the death. 
the disciples never mourned the death of Jesus. After they knew what I'm telling you. Never. They never did remembrance. They never cried about it. It was a thing of thanksgiving. Hallelujah. You see that? In Ephesians 1, 7, I told you at the beginning of this series. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Say, in him I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Can I tell you this? Growing up spiritually means you begin to understand what the Bible says about you and begin to talk like it. So, According to Ephesians 1, 7, how did you get forgiven? By faith in the blood of Jesus, right? Do you know a lot of people still think forgiveness comes by prayer? Can I shake your table a little? Okay, I want to break it and throw it away. Is that? Hallelujah. Forgiveness does not, this is revelation, forgiveness did not come by prayer. It, not, it did not come by asking. It came by faith in the blood of Jesus. It was the death of Jesus that brought forgiveness to you. Not asking. It's faith in the blood. That's what brings forgiveness. You needed a ransom. What you needed was a ransom. Not, if, I'm, if I'm a judge and I find you guilty, imagine you start begging me, please, sir, for mercy, 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 mercy. I will do it again, I promise. Sin of commission, omission, permission. <laughs> and multiplication. <laughs> That's what a lot of people are trying to do to God. Mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy. It's, it's, it's not. <laughs> Hallelujah. In the eyes of God, you needed a ransom. He found a ransom for you. Believe in Him. In Him, you have redemption and forgiveness of sins. By faith in His blood, faith in the operation of God. So, forgiveness is a provision. It's a provision in Christ. Let me, let me see if you will get this. God is not forgiving any man again. God has forgiven. Listen, forgiveness is in Christ. So now there's a structure. You want forgiveness? This is the message. Enter, take it, and go. No, Father, Father, mercy. Last time. Second. You are the God of a second. Listen. Listen. If God is a God of second chance, we're in trouble. Because two chances, you really think two chances is enough? Even two life is not enough in video game. <laughs> Talk less of real life. Hallelujah. You need many chances, many chances, many chances. Hallelujah. So it's a provision. 
It's a provision. Do you believe? You have forgiveness. So when you believe, forgiveness is a possession. Is a, I have redemption. I have forgiveness. I cannot ask for something I have. I have forgiveness in Christ. I know what some people are thinking. Some people are thinking, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our faults, he is faithful. That's why you have to read the Bible in context. 1 John 1, 9 is for sinners. Not for, let me prove it to you. Open it. There's something called context. If you take the text, if you take a text out of context, what you're left with is con. It makes you a con man. Trying to deceive people. First John chapter 1. Let's see if he's talking to believers. Look at verse 1. I'm going to move very fast. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we heard, which our eyes have seen, which our hands, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's talking as someone who walked with Jesus physically. He says, What I'm talking to you about this Jesus, I touched him. We looked at him. We heard from him. It says, For that life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare unto you, that ye may have fellowship with us. Is he talking to believers? This is evangelism. That ye may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with Christ and with his Son. So the people he's talking about, don't have fellowship with Christ and with his son. With God and with his son. These things write unto you. That your joy. You see that? So he now begins to. Preach to them. He says this is the message which you have heard. And declare unto you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him. And walk in darkness. We lie. And the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light. As he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. And what? So, the, he says, then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So, how does that cleansing come? Walking in the light. How do you walk in, li- in the light? To say that he is who he said he is. Don't forget how he started. That eternal life is in him. To believe. You see that? A lot of people just know verse 9. They don't know verse 7. He's talking to unbelievers in verse 8. If we say we have no sin. You see, you have to recognize your other helplessness to receive salvation. That's what he's saying. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does the cleansing come? Not by the confessing. Hey. Not just by saying, I'm a sinner. You know what? Daddy, 2015, April 2nd, I stole bread. 
Now he say, oh, he say, wait, I'm not done. I, and I say, what will I do now? I also need butter. Then you know, you know, he has a opposite. And God say, yes. And I was, you, you know, just squatted and went there and stole their butter. And Jesus said, hey! You know, then when you finish listening to everything, they say, I know it's too much. I have nothing to give you, you know. I have made you too small in my eyes. You know, you begin, you begin to say all those. And, like, and God is turning his back. He's angry. Then you sing, sing, sing. You turn him. Then you now start singing all those Yoruba songs. You know what I <laughs> You know all those drama. Or God is angry. Jesus is now begging him. Please now. Please now. <laughs> Second chance. Hallelujah. Let's see what was written to believers. Look at the next chapter. Chapter 2 verse 1. Chapter 2 verse 1. Are you there? It says, my little children. Listen, the, the, the apostles never called unbelievers children. He's talking about, so he's writing to a people group. He first of all addressed unbelievers. Now he's addressing believers. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. He says, and if any man sin, ask for forgiveness. Is that what he said? What did he say? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. You see that? So, if you sin, he tells you, that's why Jesus died. You have an advocate. And because you have an advocate, you have forgiveness. Listen, that doesn't mean, I'm, I'm just going to round off here because time is fast spent. That doesn't mean you won't feel guilty. If you, if you don't feel guilty when you sin, maybe you are not saved. It should break your heart. Because it's inconsistent with your nature. You can even talk about it with God. You, you say, Daddy, you know, this is not who I am. I have your spirit in me. But you talk about yourself the way the Bible, you know, the church at Corinth, they were misbehaving. Doing all sorts of things. And Paul says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He's talking to people he knew had issues with sin. He's scolding them. Today, they'll say, ah, the Holy Ghost has left you. Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost has left you. So now, someone, listen, someone makes a mistake and you say, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So, with your error, you still have the Holy Ghost. That's what he's saying. And that's not to encourage them to sin. It's actually to get them to stop sinning. He's telling them, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, so you cannot go on in sin. You see that? But the fact is, he still said, their body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He said, how how dare you act like this? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So we're not talking about not correcting people who sin. A believer who sins should be corrected. But correct him the wrong way. Don't say, ah, Holy Ghost. See Holy Ghost leaving you. See, I see him leaving leaving you. (laughs) Then you start begging him. Pass me not. 
They wrote to him. They wrote to him. These people have sinned. He said, what? Know ye not? That's how to preach. So, chapter 1 was talking to unbelievers. Chapter 2 was talking. He says, first of all, that's why he, he knew he's about to say something heavy. That's why he first told you. I'm not saying this too that you go on in sin. No? But if you sin. Are you with me? You have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation of our sins. And not, not for ours only, but for the sins of the world. Everyone else who would believe. That's the gospel. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's faith in the operation of God. His death benefited me. His burial benefited me. His resurrection benefited me. I was baptized into his body. Raised up to walk in the newness of life. That's who I am in Christ. I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. The stony heart has been taken out of my flesh. Hallelujah. The spirit of God walks in me. Hallelujah. He has redeemed us, a people unto himself. Zealous for good works. I can be zealous for good works because I'm his workmanship. I'm his brand. I carry his seal upon my heart. Hallelujah. I walk. I don't walk on in darkness. I walk in the light as he is in the light. The body of sin is destroyed. I can't go on in sin. But I have forgiveness. In him, I have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. I didn't earn it. He took my place. He died my death. I'll never die. Glory to God. I'll never die. He died my death. Hey! And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have salvation. It's a gift. A free gift. And I'm thankful. Thank you dear Jesus. Hey! By him, we have access into this grace. Wherein we stand and rejoice. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. It says, you who were far off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. I'm forever close to him. Forever. He will never be far away. Hallelujah. He is my advocate. He is my propitiation. Ah, all my faults, my slips have been paid for. Hallelujah. I've been redeemed by grace. Hallelujah. Glory to God. One of the most brilliant illustrations of Jesus taking your place, you can sit down for a bit, of Jesus taking your place was with the story of Jesus and Barabbas. You, you just don't see it initially, but it's right there. So Pilate wants to, wants to let Jesus go. Because the Bible clearly says he knew that it was because of envy that the Pharisees had arrested him. He knew. Apart from that, his wife had had a dream and came to warn him, don't be a part of this. This man is innocent. So, so he kept looking for a way to let Jesus go. And that's why he told them to flog Jesus even more. Because he, he was hoping that if they flog Jesus more than usual, the people say, it's enough, it's enough, it's enough. But he didn't realize that the enemy was working in those people to fulfill the will of God. So there was a manifestation of wickedness. Jesus was bit beyond recognition. It was not enough. They put crown of thorns on his head. It was not enough. 
They still wanted to crucify him. So Pilate says, okay, his final, his final attempt is this. I, as the governor, have the sovereign right to release a lawful captive once every year. I have the sovereign right. So I'm going to release a prisoner to you today. And I mean it's simple. I know who you're going to choose already. But let me just, let me just give you the option. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he never did anything but heal and deliver. He's innocent. He's gracious. He's kind. You all know. By the way, he's already been beaten. Or Barabbas. He's a cow of our time. He's killed. He's murdered. You know, I, this is ridiculous. I, I already know, of course, you're going to say, of course, leave Barabbas to rot. Whatever animosity we had against Jesus, you, why put him beside Barabbas? That's blasphemous. You know, just, just take him back inside. Okay, you know what? I get your point, Pilate. You win. I see what you did there. Nice one. I see what you did there. <laughs> Let Jesus go. But to his shock, they cried, Crucify Jesus! Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Pilate, the Bible says, cried out, what has this man done to you? He, he said, why? But their voices drowned his. Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. You know, Barabbas, we don't know how long he had been in prison. Doesn't even know this Jesus, what he has done. All he knows is, despite all the terrible things he's done, He's on the stand, and people are saying, release him, release him. And maybe he's that ignorant and that stupid, he's still like, ah, they like me. They like me. You know. And then he hands his chains, and they release it. Release it. There's no record of him even saying thank you. But the guilty was released for the innocence. It was on account of the innocence that the guilty was killed. Listen, this was a man on death row. He was meant to be killed. But he was released because of Jesus. Now you see that and you're like, Barabbas, wicked guy. This is You were Barabbas. Don't you get? You stood before God's legal system. And, Jesus, and God said, let Jesus take it. Let them go. Hallelujah. The Bible says, when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. We were without strength. Hallelujah. He's our propitiation. He shed blood for us. Shed blood for us. And now, we are free. Free to serve the living God. He washed us with his own blood. Washed us of our sins with his own blood. We're buried with him by baptism. Ay, ay, ay. And now we can speak like Paul. And say we are crucified together with Christ. Nevertheless we live. Yet not I. But Christ that lives in us. He says the life I now live. I live by the faith of the son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. Be settled in it. Rise to your feet. And just give him praise. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 
996-7000. Blessings. Blessings.